All right, we're going to start out today with the 139th Psalm. For the chief musician, a Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and all are acquainted and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they are all they all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, how precious it is, and we thank you that you know us intimately and you know every word that's going to come off of our lips even before we say them. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for guiding us through life's trials and troubles. And Lord, we're going to meet today in a small congregation and uh, hear from your word. And I would ask that you bless this service and the people that are here, that they would hear something that would help them to refine their doctrine and understand you in a greater and more intimate way and how you alone are the source of righteousness for each one of us. I thank you. I praise you. I give you all the glory that you're due in the exalted and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right, I got a couple of announcements here. Um, next week, we will have church on the beach. It'll be at 1030, just as always. And then the week after that, which is 22 July, I will be gone. I'll be in the Berkshires helping my father cut down trees and cut up trees and uh, uh, fix up his house. And I go every year. And so on 22 July, we will not have any service. So keep that in mind. And um, as I say, week after week, I don't usually say it when the video is running, but I still am looking for a job. And so if you know of a church that comes open, a pastor position, I am honestly not interested in working in a uh, non-preaching position. If a pastor is willing to share preaching, that's fine. If he wants a youth pastor or something like that, that's not what I uh, want to do with my life. I want to be able to take God's word and to preach it to other people. And so normally that means a smaller congregation, that's fine. I'll take any size of congregation, but... Uh, uh, I do need work, and so keep that in mind as you're uh, uh, out and about in the world or the people that are on the video. 
Um, if you hear of something, please let me know. And um, if uh, I think both of you have been baptized, so I'm not even going to bring that up today, although I will talk about baptism just a little bit. And uh, of course, I want to bring up Paul and Elaine Stoll, who I bring up every week. There are missionaries over in Japan. And uh, Elaine actually came back to the States a week ago. She arrived in uh, New York, I believe, wherever it was. It was during that great storm that they had. And so she had no power and she was completely hemmed in for a couple of days. And I don't know how she is since then. But of course, Paul uh, was still in Japan at the time and uh, he's doing the Lord's work over there. And I want to keep them in prayer as our missionaries to Japan. And um, also uh, Sergio and Rhoda, who I said I wouldn't mention anymore. I'm going to mention him again. He uh, This morning he uh, Skyped me or, or Google chatted or something. And uh, we talked for a while, and he misses the church, she misses the church, and uh, uh, they have found a house, they're moving in, but uh, he wanted to be remembered by everybody, and uh, he says hello to everybody. And um, that brings me to a thought, is that for the people that are watching on video, I want you to understand that Sergio brought his own camera, and so we had two cameras out here, and uh, it made it a little more user-friendly watching a video instead of watching just one video. And um, I only have one video, and to buy, or I'm sorry, one camera, and to buy a second camera would be more expensive than I want to spend right now. You need a, a tripod, you need the camera, you need the, uh, uh, you know, the data storage thing, and it all comes out to about $1,000. So for at least right now, all we have is one camera, and uh, I apologize for that. I know that uh, it's nicer watching it from different angles, but at the same time, it saves me quite a bit of work because processing a video takes normally, you know, six, seven, eight, nine hours, and you have two cameras, you just add in more work. So uh, it's kind of good, it's kind of bad, but at some point, if I can ever afford a second camera, I will have one out here. And um, I'm not going to do any New Testament reading like I normally do today. And the reason why is because we are going to be evaluating Galatians chapter 3 in detail. And because of that, there's no point in having a New Testament reading and then going ahead and doing a uh, uh, an evaluation of something very similar in the sermon itself. So uh, we'll get into the sermon in just a minute. It will be on uh, Genesis 15, 1 through 6, and it's entitled The Source of Righteousness. But before that, let's go ahead and pray one more time for Paul and Elaine and uh, for any other needs that we have in our lives. Heavenly Father, we do pray for Paul and Elaine and the great work that they're doing uh, over in Japan and the people that they've brought to the Lord that they would be strengthened and edified and uh, built up as uh, strong disciples in Jesus Christ so that they won't be pulled away by any strange doctrines and uh, I pray for the congregation here that you would take care of them and their needs in the week ahead and just bless them and take good care of them and uh, uh, also pray for Sergio and Rhoda who definitely are in a transition in their life and that's always a stressful thing so I would ask that you would just continue to help them and bless them through that trial and uh, uh, keep them happy with each other and uh, not in any strife or anything, but just uh, that you'll be glorified through how they interact with each other. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We do thank you for every good blessing you've given us. And we want to give you the glory and the praise that you are due in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. All right. Now, before we get into the sermon, I want to read one more psalm. If I can find it. Here we go. It's the 138th Psalm, one right before uh, the one I just read. And this is a Psalm of David. I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name. 
for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. In the day when I cried out, you answered me, and behold, and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hand. As I said, today we're going to be uh, going over Genesis 15 verses 1 through 6. This is the source of righteousness. But before I do that, I always give this day in history. And uh, we had a few interesting things that happened on this day in history. The first is that in 1099, Christian soldiers on the first crusade marched around Jerusalem. And you have to ask, why would Christian soldiers go down to Jerusalem and get a piece of land that's in, you know, a barren wasteland at the time? And the reason why is because there is a doctrine that eventually developed. The Jewish people have been dispersed around the world. They are no longer a cohesive group of people. They're just individual Jews who have retained their identity. And the church is looking at all of these promises of the Old Testament, and they're saying, well, gee whiz, it says this and this and this and this, and we know this has never been fulfilled. And so we must have replaced Israel. And so they say we are spiritual Israel. Well, part of being spiritual Israel is possessing the land of Israel, and especially the city of Jerusalem. And so along come the Crusades, and they try to overthrow Jerusalem, and then years later, the Muslims take over Jerusalem, and you've got this back and forth because of a misunderstanding of God's plans for the Jewish people in the world. God is not done with the Jewish people. There is a plan and a purpose for them, and it is coming to its fulfillment. And one other thing that I'd like to say about the Crusades, because um, a lot of people say, well, you know, look at how bad Christians are and all the bad things they've done throughout the years. The fact that Christians do bad things does not mean that it is ordained by God in the Bible. That's a category mistake when you say, well, I don't like Christianity because of the actions of the Christians. It is Jesus Christ we're worshiping, not the deeds of the Christians, which will always fall short. One of the things that uh, they had a slogan in the Crusades that said, kill a Jew, save your soul. So going down to the land of Israel, if they found a little pocket of Jewish people, they'd kill them and they'd think they were going to heaven because of this. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. That is insane. That is not the God that we are worshiping and that is not what we are looking forward to in uh, living a righteous life. Instead, we um, uh, want to love our neighbors. We want to do the things that the Bible proclaims. But that's all tied up in this one thing that happened on this day in history. Anyway, I won't beat that to death, but I witnessed to a guy yesterday and he is so angry at the world. He's angry at Christians. He's angry at everything because of things like this. He has a misunderstanding of what Jesus Christ means to him because of the actions of Christians. So we don't look at Christians, we look at Christ. Okay, second thing that happened in 1663, King Charles II of England granted a charter to Rhode Island. Now that may not be very interesting to you, but the reason why I brought it up is because I traveled to the nation's capitals a couple of years ago, and in Rhode Island, I was so excited to read this. In Rhode Island, they actually have that charter. It's kept in a very secure vault, but it's opened up every day. And you can look at it, you can read it, and it's this giant thing that was written out. So 
kind of a fun thing in, on this day in history. On this same day in history, in 1776, a guy named Colonel John Nixon gave the first public reading of what? Anybody know what he read out loud? 1776. It was the Declaration of Independence. It was the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence on this day 236 years ago. It was done at Independence Square in Philadelphia. And so you, there you go. That's a kind of an interesting thing. And uh, one of the things I was kind of looking over the Declaration this morning to refresh myself on it, and one of the things that it says is um, uh, we are all endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights that of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know that. Well, it's kind of interesting that 236 years later, we have a president that will not say the word creator when he cites that sentence. He skips right over it. He says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and, and then he skips over are endowed by our creator. And that is, that is pathetic. At best, that is pathetic. I don't care whether you voted for the guy or not. That is almost heretical in nature as far as being an American citizen, that you cannot acknowledge that your rights and your morality stems from God. So keep that in mind when you make your vote this year. In 1865, a guy named C.E. Barnes patented the machine gun. And when he did that, he thought this is going to end war because it's such a devastating weapon that people won't want to fight anymore. And in fact, it's just increased the killing in war. I don't care how devastating the weapon is, it will always be used. That's all there is to it. We have nuclear bombs kills, you know, how many thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people in a single second? Well, he thought he had a good intent and instead a lot of people suffered because of it. If you need a chair, I bought one for you right there. In 1969, we have one more. It was the U.S. Patent Office that issued a patent for the game Twister. And within a year of that being done, chiropractors' offices all around America grew exponentially. So that's from this day in history. All right, so now into the main portion of the sermon. This is Genesis 15, 1 through 6. And I understand, I'm going to get a little long like I did last week. If you need to go, get up and leave. And I'm not going to feel offended at all by that. But before you go... Everybody that's here, if you have to leave, I would expect you to grab a plastic bag and to fill it full of mangoes because I don't want to carry those mangoes back out to the car. There's like 100 pounds of them there, and I almost killed myself carrying them here. So please take mangoes. If you want more in the week ahead, come by the house, Mango City, okay? Please take them. And uh, I, it's, it, you'll be helping me. So if you need to leave, grab mangoes and go. Free mangoes. I, I may come to doing that after all my friends have come by. I may put a sign out there because i got to tell you, it is, it is almost overwhelming how many mangoes are there and how many are falling and just splattering all over. So keep that in mind. All right, so we'll get into the main uh, focus of the sermon now. And uh, before I actually cite our first verse, I want to uh, acknowledge that I don't know how many of you personally have ever taken the time to tell anybody about Jesus Christ. But if you have or if you haven't, if you have, you already know this. If you haven't, you need to know this, is that there are a million ways to get started. And once you do, what you need to do is you need to watch people's eyes. You need to watch their body motions. If you start losing them, then you need to change your tact. If not, you're going to lose them. And that may be their only chance in their lifetime to hear about Jesus Christ. Some people already know that they are messed up. Yeah, we'll take an example of drug addicts downtown. Some of them don't think they're doing anything wrong. They couldn't care 
And if you talk to them about it, they say, well, this is just what I do. But some people know that they're messed up. And yeah, I've taken drugs and I'm just, my life is a basket case and I need to get right. If they are in that position where they already know that they're messed up, all you need to do is tell them of his grace, tell them of his mercy, tell them of his love. And then you just simply explain to them the path of salvation, which is so simple and clear from the book of Romans. If you can remember four verses, you can lead a messed up person into the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. All you need to do is tell them that the wages of sin is death and that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And then what you need to do is tell them that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He's offering an exchange for the two. And then all you need to do is tell them that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Why call on the name of the Lord? Because he didn't just die for our sins. He came out of the ground to justify us. They're inextricably tied together, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody would call on a dead Lord. You call on a risen Lord. So you remember those four verses and you can lead a person to Christ that already knows he's messed up. But other people have what I would call the I problem. When you ask them, why should God allow you into heaven? And I did this just yesterday. And this guy could not stop saying, I, I'm a pretty good guy. I try to be good to others. I'm not as bad as others. And that's all that was coming out of his mouth. And every time I told him, all you're doing is you're comparing yourself against other people or against yourself, not against an infinitely holy God. He couldn't understand it. He could not grasp that he wasn't righteous in and of himself. But when somebody uses the term I, any time during his reason why he should go to heaven, he is probably much, much further away from God than he realizes. He or she, I should say. In this case, what you need to do with those people is you need to give them the law. You need to give them God's standard. You need to explain his righteousness, his mercy, his justice, his standard of morality, and then show them how they measure up against that. When a person, no matter how good they are, is measured against infinite holiness, perfect holiness, there's nothing left but condemnation. Jesus says from his own mouth that we are to be perfect just as our heavenly father is perfect. And yet that's not possible for us to do. When we start doing things in an attempt to merit God's favor, we actually move farther away from him because we are now trusting in our own deeds. And this becomes a source of self-idolatry. So we've got to be careful not to make that mistake. In a similar reason, when we give, or in a similar way, when we give any other reason, and I mean any other reason on earth why God should allow you into his presence, other than Jesus Christ for our justification, then we are actually making ourselves out to be God. We have now replaced God's word, and we have replaced his decision, which is, you will come to me through my son with your own decision. Any person who claims that he will be saved for any other reason than Jesus Christ is actually committing blasphemy against God. Today, we will look at the source of righteousness and how we obtain that. When we do, we can confidently say that we have access to heaven and to God's eternal home. And that brings us to our text verse today, which comes from Isaiah chapter 51. It's verses 1 and 2. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, 
and the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Today, we will look to our father Abraham and we will learn to follow the true path to righteousness. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. And that leads us right into our first thought of the day, which is our shield and our exceedingly great reward. Now, I want to review the last two weeks real quickly so you know where we are in context. We went through Genesis chapter 14. It concerned the battle between the four kings of the east and the five kings around the area of Sodom, which is in the land of Canaan. It was during this battle that the kings of the east took Lot captive and carried him off towards their home. But when Avram heard about it, he took his own men and he chased them. He chased after them. He defeated them. He got Lot. He got everything that they had captured and he brought it back safely. And when he returned, he was met by that enigmatic figure, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. He was also, after he met Melchizedek, offered the booty of the spoils of the war from the king of Sodom. But he returned it to the king of Sodom instead. And this leads us right into chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Avram in a vision. This is the very first time in the entire Bible that the, the saying, the word of the Lord came meaning that the Lord has revealed himself through his word. In the Bible, there are several ways that God reveals himself. Sometimes he does it through a personal appearance. We'll get into a story later with Abraham where he's sitting and the Lord walks up to him. Uh, the Lord personally appears to Joshua when they cross over the Jordan River. The Lord personally appears in the person of Jesus Christ later in the Bible. These are personal appearances of God manifest in human flesh. Sometimes he comes by an audible voice. You may know the story of uh, Elijah, I'm sorry, Samuel, the uh, last judge of Israel. When he was a little boy, he lived at the tabernacle and he heard a voice. He didn't know who it was. And three or four times he went up to Eli, the high priest at night, and he says, did you call me? And finally, Eli realized the Lord is speaking to him. So he comes audibly through a voice. Sometimes he comes by visions, either when he's awake, like um, uh, Ezekiel was awake when he had this vision of uh, these wheels within wheels and all of this great manifestation of God. But he was awake at the time. At other times, he will come in a vision while somebody is asleep, such as when Daniel was asleep and he had this horrifying vision and he woke up and it says he was appalled for days or whatever. I mean, uh, it, it was an overwhelming thing to him to have this vision at night. But sometimes it's during the day when he's awake. Sometimes it's at night when he's asleep. Uh, sometimes you will also have the Spirit of God clothing a person or actually moving a person. There's a guy named Amasai that showed up in the presence of King David, and it says that the Spirit clothed him. He, he came upon him in a way that caused him to prophesy. He wasn't normally a prophet. He was a captain of the guards or something. I don't remember specifically his title, but he was uh, an officer in the military. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed him for a specific purpose at a specific time. When these things happened, and however they happened, it is the word of the Lord which is being given, and therefore what is being said is a part of his very nature, which is being revealed to us. We have the word of the Lord today as well. It's in a very specific place, and it doesn't come in any other way, in my opinion. It's called the Holy Bible. Jude clearly says, once for all delivered to the saints. 
In other words, the word of the Lord has come. It has been delivered. That's why the book of Revelation is called the book of Revelation. It reveals Jesus Christ. We don't need any further revelation of him to know who he is and how he represents God the Father. So if you want to know the word of the Lord today, what you need to do is you need to go down to your local bookstore, buy something called the Holy Bible, open it up and read it. And that will be the word of the Lord to you. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't speak to us in, in the dark hours of the night or he doesn't speak to us when we pray for somebody and he heals them. But it's not an audible voice and it is not a proclamation, which is something that is revealing the word in a different way than is revealed in the Bible. Okay, But I do believe God heals. I do believe that God does things in human history even to this day. But it is not the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Okay, We want to make sure that we don't make that error. Because if you go into a church and somebody's proclaiming the word of the Lord, now I've seen pastors do this. Oh, the Lord just said to me. And usually when he does that, when I hear a pastor say something like that, it usually revolves around money or it revolves around something he needs done in the church. And the Lord just said to me, and I can't tell you how many people I see do this. You see it on Christian TV all the time. The Lord is not speaking to that man. He is a false prophet. He is not getting anything from the Lord. So you don't be deceived by that. If somebody says the Lord has spoken to me and he wants me to give you this word, it's not true. I assure you, it is not true. Anyway, the word of the Lord came to Avram in a vision. Verse 1 continues, saying, Do not be afraid, Avram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. In Hebrew, it says, Altira Avram, Anuchi Magenlach, Secharicha Harbe Meod. In the Hebrew that I just read, the I is stated separately, Anuchi, instead of being combined with another word, which is something that's common in the Hebrew language. What this means is that the I is emphatic to Abraham. I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. And I know that the question that each one of you just asked yourself, because you are the greatest congregation in the whole world, is why would the Lord say this emphatically to Avram? What does Avram have to fear that he needs a shield? Or what kind of a reward should he anticipate? There are two things that are tied up in what the Lord says to him. First, being a shield means that he is the protector from harm. And secondly, being an exceedingly great reward means that he is the giver of all that is good. There are probably a couple of reasons why Avram needed to be protected from harm. And this brings back why I brought in chapter 14. It's because he had just defeated the four kings of the east. And when he did that, he may have thought that they may come together back in their hometown get more people together and come against him again. And if they do that, he could be wiped out. So he may have that as a legitimate fear. Secondly, he's living as a pilgrim in the land of Canaan. He's got all kinds of booty. He's got hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people under him. He's got wealth that is growing almost daily. And of course, the people of the Canaan will want to take that away from him. So he may have legitimate fears. There are people who don't have who want to take from people that do have. And along with blessing often comes jealousy. We see it in our society. We see it more and more in our society every day because of our president currently building a society of anger against each other. Instead of trying to unite people the way that previous presidents have, he is trying to divide them. It's called class warfare. And we see that today. We see it between societies as well. One society says, I want what they don't have. People who don't have will thieve and they will steal. 
to get what is not theirs and what they do not deserve. There are also reasons why Avram would need to be promised everything that is good. When living in a world like we are today, good and bad are often so inextricably tied together that when something is good is given to you, it is inevitably tied in with something that has a bad result. In the previous chapter, Avram turned down all of the spoils of the war, which he had won. He had every right to take those spoils, but he turned them down simply because of this lesson. If he took the spoils, which would have benefited him greatly, it would have ended in something bad because he could claim that others, or he had benefited from others' wickedness. This would be something like a lawyer representing the mob. So you have something good, you're representing somebody, but it has, it's tied in with something bad. And so that is why Avram would need an exceedingly great reward. From the Lord is where we receive infinitely good blessings. And there's nothing less than good that comes from the Lord. This is why the Lord promises to be his shield and his exceedingly great reward. In this one verse then is something both tangible and something that transcends the creation and reaches into the eternal and into the spiritual realm. This verse is the first real hint of what leads to in our understanding of God, a term which is found later in the Bible, uh, right towards the end of the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. It's where the term, the Lord, our righteousness comes from. It is he who redeems us from death. He is our shield and it is he who grants us eternal life, the exceedingly great reward. So if you're a Christian then, as we will look at more closely in just a couple of minutes, you are Abraham's seed and heir according to this very promise. If there is a better verse than Genesis 15 verse one to start a sermon, anywhere in the Bible, I can't think of where it is. Here we are, we are 4,000 years after the time of Avram and the very promise which we just read that God made to him applies to us as well today. The promise stands because it is God's promise spoken by his own mouth that the Lord is our shield and that the Lord is our exceedingly great reward. And that brings us to verse two. But Avram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing as how I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? In this verse is something for everybody to notice and to learn from. This is the very first time in the Bible that the word Adonai is used. And I talked about this last week and I talk about it from time to time, but it's very important to understand this. If you take a look at the first verse that we just read, verse one, it will say Lord with all capitals. If you look at this verse, it says Lord with a capital in three small letters. And then there is one more Lord in the Old Testament, which is all small letters. Lord with all capitals is translated from the divine name, Jehovah or Yahweh. Lord with a capital and three small letters is Adonai, the term that uh, Avram just used right here. This is always speaking about the Lord, but it does not use his name out of respect. The Lord, which is all small, means something like Mr. or Master. It's important to know these for several reasons, but for right now, all you need to remember is that all caps is the divine name. A cap in three small letters is the term Adonai. It is speaking to the Lord or about the Lord without using his name. And all small letters is like Mr. As you're reading the Bible, you take notice of this. 
and it will help you better understand what's going on in the context of what you're reading. Because if not, you don't know if he's speaking to God or about God or if it's God speaking or if it's just a person. And there are times where it becomes critically important. And so keep that in mind as you're reading and always pay attention to those subtle differences. Avram, right here, using the term Adonai, indicates that he knows that he is speaking to the Creator God. And then despite that, what may seem incredible is that he says to God, what will you give me, seeing as how I go childless? But I can assure you, this is not a question that is lacking faith. Instead, it's demonstrating the high importance placed on having a child in his society, and not someone that is merely born in his house or who is in charge of his house. So to help you understand this, imagine God appearing to me, Charlie Garrett, and saying, do not fear, Charlie. I am your shield. I am your exceedingly great reward. Maybe I'd say, but Adonai, what are you going to give me? Seeing as how all I have is this little church out at Turtle Beach, and I don't know if from week to week it's going to rain or not. Now, if I propose that question to him, is that something that is lacking faith? Or am I just simply making an obvious statement that all I have is a little church out on the beach and I don't know whether it's going to rain from week to week or not? The very fact that I am calling him Adonai when I address him means that I understand that he is sovereign over everything that happens. He is the supreme governor of all the parts of what is going on in our life. He is the one who will take care of every matter concerning the present and my future welfare and his personal glory. The Lord already knows that Charlie Garrett wants to be a preacher. And the Lord already knows that Avram wants a child. The Lord is in charge of whether I get a church someday or not. And the Lord is in charge of whether Avram will get a child or not. And guess what? Adonai is in charge of everything that goes on in your life as well. Everything that you both want and need he already knows, and you will get it if he has promised it to you. If he has opened his mouth and uttered a promise to you, he will fulfill it. And if there is a desire of your heart, all you need to do is just simply and plainly tell it to him. Lord, Adonai, I really need a job. Lord, Adonai, I need this or that. He is listening to your words. And he is attending to them according to his glory and according to your needs and in accordance with the word that he has already spoken to you. So keep that in mind, that the Lord does love his children. And I'm talking to people that are saved believers, because if you're not a believer, you need to get your life right with the Lord first. And then the promises and the blessings that come from the Lord will flow down to you as they are recorded in his word. Verse 3 says, Then Avram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. As Matthew Henry comments on this particular verse, he says it beautifully. Though we must never complain of God, yet we have leave to complain to him. A complaint is not a lack of faith. A complaint is a state of mind that says, I am unhappy with the way things are going. Now, I complain all the time. Most people that know me intimately know this. I'm what you might call, and I mean this sincerely, a whiner. And God hears every one of my sniffling little whines. My wife hears most of them too. I'm not sure why I would complain to either of them though, because I know that God already knows my complaints, and I also know that my wife cannot help me with most of the complaints that I have. But 
there is something about complaining. And I'm not talking about the complaining that Paul writes about in the New Testament. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about stating your desires to somebody. There's something about doing that out loud that helps us as individuals to unpackage the very frustration that we're feeling. And this might be what Avram is doing here. He's feeling unhappy about not having a child even after the Lord has promised that his descendants will inherit the land of Canaan. By telling the Lord that he doesn't have any offspring, he's looking at other options that may be available, which is in the case right now, he has somebody that is born in his house that is his heir. And he may be thinking, maybe I should formally adopt this person. You see what I'm saying is when you state something out loud, it may help you process it differently. And I'm going to stop right now, and I'm going to say this because there are people watching on video, and they may not know that all these sounds out here, we've got crickets and we've got crows and everything. So if you hear a constant whining, it is not the audio equipment. It is God's audio presentation for you. So please keep that in mind. I was uh, processing the video last week, and I heard it, and I thought, those poor people. But it's nice out here, and I think everybody that's here is enjoying it, but it may not be as nice for you. So I'm just letting you know that if you're watching this on video. Anyway, Charlie said, Adonai, you have given me no building. Indeed, it's supposed to rain next Sunday. What am I going to do? And Adonai said, it'll all work out just the way it should, Charlie. Stop whining. That brings us to our second thought, the source of righteousness. This is verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one, meaning Eliezer, who he just mentioned, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. Avram is now given the promise of a son from his own body. It will not be an adopted son, meaning the son of his house or his servant, nor will it be a female. Avram is promised a son to carry on his name by the word of the Lord. And when the Lord speaks, I assure you, it will come to pass. That brings us to verse five. Then he brought him outside and he said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now, before I give you my thoughts on this verse, I want to read you what Google Answers says about how many stars are visible in the night sky. You can't count the stars directly due to the rotation of the Earth. More keep appearing on one side and disappearing from the other. As atmospheric conditions change, some stars become visible and some stars become invisible. Instead, people look through a tube count the stars in that field of view and scale that figure up to obtain an estimate for the total. If you want a specific number, the Yale Bright Star Catalog catalogs the naked eye visible stars, which they consider to be those with a magnitude of 6.5 or brighter. Those have been cataloged and listed and there are 9,110 entries in that list. But if you want to see all of them, you need to have ideal conditions, good eyes, several high-altitude viewpoints in different parts of the Earth, a moonless night, no aurora, and that is absolutely still clear, dry air. So completing a counting of all of the stars in the visible sky from every vantage point on Earth is 9,110 stars. Taken in context from what God just promised Avram, this may make the promise seem a little bit suspicious and even less than reasonable. You think 9,000 descendants, well, what kind of a blessing is that? But I would like to propose a possibility in this verse which might answer 
this dilemma, okay? And it, before I give it to you, I want to, let me just tell you it this way. This is so far out of any commentary that I have ever read on this verse that it very well may not be correct, but I do believe it's the correct analysis of this verse. Let me read it to you again. The Lord took Avram outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. But in just a couple of verses in the same context, it's going to say this. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Avram. This certainly implies based on the context that when the Lord was speaking to Avram about the stars, it was during the daytime, not the nighttime. So in my mind, there are only two possibilities to answer this dilemma. The first is what comes from verse one. The word of the Lord came to Avram in a vision. The vision then showed Avram a display of the heavens was beyond what we see with our naked eye. In other words, he might've seen something like what we get to see with the Hubble telescope today. I am the creator of all of this. As immense as this universe is that I have made is as sure as the promise that I'm giving to you. This is unlikely though. I wanna be honest about it because we would not have the same reference as Avram. It would be like mixing apples and oranges because Avram is seeing something that people for 4,000 years didn't see until we had the Hubble Space Telescope. So I don't think that's a reasonable explanation. The second possibility, and the one that I favor, is that Avram was taken outside during the day, and he was told to count the stars if he was able to do so, which he couldn't because the number was hidden from him. But Lord, I can't count them. It's daytime. It's beyond my ability to even try. I know they're there, and I know there's an astonishing number of them, but I simply cannot count them. And the Lord's answer, just as impossible, as it is for you to count them, so shall your descendants be. But if this is the case, then there is something veiled to the eyes of Avram, but which is revealed later in the Bible. There's actually one star visible in the daytime sky. And we know that, it's our sun. Avram, nor anyone else for eons, knew that the sun was just another star out of many billions of stars in the, the galaxy. He had no idea about that and nobody else did either. But he was taken outside with this one star out there and it was alluding to something that, as I said, it's later revealed in the Bible, but he may have had an inkling of it at the time. It was pointing to the ultimate promise of the heir, uh, the ultimate heir of the promise that he is making, who is Jesus Christ. Is this possible? In Malachi 4, verse two, the last page of the Old Testament, Jesus is called the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. No, Avram could not count the stars in the sky because it was daytime. And during the daytime, the sun is so brilliant that it blocks out all of the other stars from view. They are there, but they are hidden by the sun's surpassing brightness and the surpassing glory of it. And here we are, the children of Avram in number so vast and so large that it simply can't be counted. And above every one of us is Jesus Christ in surpassing glory. He is the Son, S-O-N, of righteousness. So do you see the comparison there? I really do believe that when Avram was taken outside, it was during the daytime. But once again, I don't wanna be dogmatic on the possibility, no matter what, the number is ultimately beyond 
our comprehension, whether it's just a field of view and we can't count them because the stars are changing, or whether it's because we have to go to all the different parts of the earth to see it, or if it's because Avram saw a vision of heaven. None of those seem to fit what is being presented here, though. What I have given, I believe, isn't just likely. I believe it's more than probable. And this leads us directly to our last verse from Genesis 15 today. This is Genesis 15, verse 6. And he, Avram, he believed in the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him for righteousness. Avram believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. What needs to happen for the rest of today's sermon is to define righteousness and then show where this quality stems from. And by doing this, we will see that this verse right here, Genesis 15:6, is the principal key in understanding our relationship with God. If you don't understand this verse and how it fits into the context of the Bible, you will miss your relationship in its fullness with God. This is only the second time in the Bible that being righteous is mentioned when speaking of a particular person. The first time was when he was speaking to Noah, and it said that Noah was righteous in his generations. But today is the first time that righteousness is said to being bestowed upon somebody, and it is done because of a simple act of faith. His belief in the incredible. As many as the stars are in the sky, thus shall your descendants be. The word righteous is mentioned 555 times in the Bible, and we could spend eons evaluating each and every instance. But what I'm going to do to keep things short today is to quote you once from Jeremiah in a verse that I quoted last week under a different context, once from Revelation, and then I'm going to read you and analyze Paul's thoughts from Galatians 3, which include his thoughts on Genesis 15:6. In Jeremiah, we see the term Yahweh Sekenu, or the Lord, our righteousness. This is Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. In the Old Testament, if you look closely, righteousness always stems from the Lord, not from us. He is the Lord, our righteousness. He gives certain parameters by which a person can be considered righteous. But as Paul will explain, we fail to meet those parameters in every single instance. And therefore, righteousness cannot come from us. It must be granted externally. And then we go to Revelation chapter 19, right there at the end of the New Testament. And we read this in verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the wife has made herself ready. And it was given to her that she should be clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. For fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Most versions that you will read of this particular verse state that the fine linen given to these saints is the righteous deeds of the saints. But this is incorrect. It is the righteousness of the saints. It is a righteousness which comes not from our deeds, but from the Lord Jesus and faith in his deeds. Now this might seem like it's splitting hairs, but I assure you it's not. It is the fundamental distinction between Christianity and every other religion on earth. The Christian is declared righteous as Avram was by faith alone. 
when faith is exercised, a person is declared righteous and stands justified before God. And that brings us to our third and final point today, if by the law. Paul, on several occasions in his writing, states that righteousness is an imputed righteousness, meaning that it is externally granted to a person and that our deeds have no merit in obtaining it. And in fact, in Galatians 3, he very clearly explains how the law of Moses fails to bestow righteousness upon us. And so today, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read you Galatians 3, and I'm going to explain it without getting into any real great detail. But here, Paul uses Genesis 15, verse 6, as a basis for the source of righteousness. To understand this and what happens to us when we under exercise our faith, we need to go back and understand what happened to Avram when he exercised his faith. So let me pull this up and we'll get into Galatians chapter 3. He starts out with these words in verse 1. Oh foolish Galatians. He is writing to a group of people that he had already gone and witnessed to and they had accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And they are making a fundamental error in something we don't know yet. But he is going to them and saying, you are so foolish. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Paul is tying in the crucifixion as the most important thing that they can hold on to, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, what I just said, he went up and he witnessed to him and he said, uh, Jesus is Lord. And they called on Jesus and they were saved. The fact that he brings in crucifixion without the resurrection is what I said earlier. Nobody would call on a dead Lord. So obviously, the crucifixion and the resurrection are tied up together. If you're calling on Jesus as Lord, he is resurrected. So he's talking about the crucifixion here. He says, this only, this is verse 2, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Okay, let me explain this. They are there in Galatia. Paul went up and witnessed to them. And he said, this is how you are saved, by faith in Jesus Christ. And they received the Spirit. These are Gentiles. They're not Jews in any way, shape, or form. They are the Galatian church. And what is happening is Jewish people are going up there and they're saying, well, you can't be saved unless you follow the law of Moses, unless you're circumcised, unless you do this and that and one thing and another. And Paul asks the obvious question. This only I want to learn from you. If you can answer this one question, then everything else that I'm going to say will make sense to you. He said, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, which they didn't have because they're not Jews, they had no law, or by the hearing of faith? It was by the hearing of faith. It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't even demand an answer. It's obvious. He went up and he gave them the word about Jesus. They believed and they were saved and they received the Spirit. Okay? Verse 3, are you so foolish? He calls it foolishness to do what churches all over the world do, even to this day. And I'll explain it in detail as we go. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, I call on Jesus Christ as Lord, God seals me with the Holy Spirit, that's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that says that the moment you believe, you receive. It is a done deal. Please understand that. When you call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there's nothing you can do to add to it. And here's what they're trying to do. He says, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit that you now are being made perfect, perfect in the flesh? In other words, these people are saying you need to be circumcised. You need to be perfected in the flesh. Well, they received the spirit without being circumcised. So what 
can circumcision add to that? What can giving up eating pork add to that? What can doing anything that is in the law of Moses add to the fact that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit? He is God. If he is God and he has sealed you, then nothing else can ever take that away. It is as sure as anything that will ever happen. Verse four, have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. These people are Galatians. Paul goes up and he tells them about the Messiah of the world that is common, that was crucified and died and resurrected, and they're calling on him as Lord. And what do they have to suffer? Their family's laughing at them, saying, what a bunch of idiots. They're calling on this guy down from Israel, and there's no proof of that. And they're probably losing their job because now they want to worship on Sunday. And they say, well, I'm sorry, you, you can't have this job anymore. And all these other things, they are suffering, and they are doing it for the name of the Lord Jesus. And he says, have you done that in vain? Have you, are you suffering for the name of the Lord Jesus in vain? He says, verse 5, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit, who supplies the Spirit? It's God. He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul gives them the gospel. They receive the gospel. They have a sick person. They bring them in and they pray for him. The sick person is miraculously healed. Or they have one of a number of miracles that comes about. They lost their job because they called on Jesus and somebody comes the next day and says, I'm going to give you a job and you don't have to work on Sunday. That is a miracle in that person's life. And the Spirit is doing that actively even in our lives today. He's taking care of us and he says, therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law? Because they hadn't yet done any works of the law and yet they've got all these uh, miracles or by the hearing of faith. They had only heard and believed and all of these things are happening. God is confirming himself in them without the law. And then he goes on to verse six and he cites Genesis 15, six, which we are talking about right here. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham had not done doodly squat to this point. God walked him outside, said, look up, I'm making a promise and God counted it to him for righteousness. You are declared righteous because of your faith. Therefore, verse seven, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Now, there are a lot of people that are physically descendants of Abraham. Israel is full of them. Uh, the Muslims today are full of sons of Abraham. They call an Ishmael, the son of Abraham through Hagar the Egyptian as their link to Abraham. But only those who are of faith in what God has done and is doing in human history are sons of Abraham. Talking about spiritual sons here. Verse 8, and the scripture. Now when Paul uses the term scripture, what is he writing about? He's writing about the Old Testament. There was no New Testament because he's sitting there writing it. There may have been the Gospel of Mark or there may have been the Gospel of uh, Matthew by the time Galatians was written. Maybe not, but there is no scripture other than the Old Testament. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now he backs up to Genesis 12, the very first promise made to Abraham. In you, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then we have a several number of years later, God walks him outside and he says, thus shall your descendants be, and it will be a son from your own body. So he still hasn't done anything, but the gospel was preached beforehand, before the time that he was declared righteous. In you, all of the nations of the world shall be blessed. And we come to verse nine. So then those who are of faith 
are blessed with believing Abraham. Abraham believed God and he was declared righteous by faith. Anybody that has faith in what God is doing and has done in human history, which we will explain, is a son of Abraham. He makes it absolutely clear. And if you don't have faith in those things, then you are not a son of Abraham. Verse 10, for as many are as of the works of the law are under a curse. He's saying that anybody that is trying to merit God's favor by fulfilling the law of Moses is under a curse. And if that sounds strong, he's going to explain it in detail here. So understand how this works. Why would God give the people the law of Moses that would put them under a curse? We're going to start right here with what he says. For it is written, back to the scriptures, and he's going to quote Deuteronomy 27. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Moses came out, he gave them the book of the law. Towards the end of Deuteronomy, he says, Cursed is everyone who does not do all the things that are written in the book of the law. Now, I've said this before. Not every every in the Bible is an every. Not every all, not all alls in the Bible are alls. It's always the context. And in this context, all means all. There are 613 commandments in the law of Moses. Cursed is anyone who does not do all things written in the book of the law. You have to meet this law perfectly or you are cursed. And that is what Moses is telling these people. All right? How many people have lied here in their life? Don't raise your hand if you don't want to. Okay. Every person on earth has lied. I don't care. If you say you've never lied, you are a liar. That's all there is to it. Every person has lied. And that is a part of the law. You are cursed because of the law. Now, don't get, you know, upset. God is, or Paul is going to explain what God is doing. But it's to show us something about our own nature as why this is given in here. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. And what does he do? He goes back to the scriptures again to the book of Habakkuk. And he is going to use Habakkuk against the law. He's going to have them working against each other to prove that we need something more than the law. Here's what he said, for the just shall live by faith. The Old Testament, the Old Testament, which he calls scripture, is saying that the just shall live by faith. And cursed is everyone who doesn't do everything that's in the law. Well, nobody can do everything that's in the law, so you're cursed, but the just shall live by faith. So he's using the two against each other to make a point that we need to be very clear on. Then he goes, verse 12, yet the law is not of faith. He just said that the just shall live by faith, but then he says that the law is not of faith, and he goes back to the Old Testament again to prove that the law is in the faith. He goes to the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, and he says, the man who does them shall live by them. Every person here just admitted that they've lied. Every person on earth has broken the law. The man who does them shall live by them. He's saying that's not faith, that's working. You're doing something. But the Bible says that the just shall live by faith. If you're trying to earn God's favor by doing something, then you're not exhibiting faith. So he's using the law against itself now, not just what it says in Habakkuk, but what Moses said and what, I'm sorry, what Moses said in Deuteronomy and what Moses said in Leviticus, all right? Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law brings about a curse. We just verified that. Paul substantiated that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? Can anybody tell me how he did it? I'm going to read it to you. Having become a curse for 
us. The sinless son of God who never sinned. He was born without sin because he wasn't born of Adam. And he never sinned during his life became a curse for us. How did it happen? He goes back to the law again. Listen to what he says from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The fact that Jesus Christ hung on a tree brought a curse. He became a curse so that we could be redeemed from the law. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see what God is doing here? It is an amazing, it is an amazing thing that he himself stepped out of eternity in the person of Jesus Christ and hung on a tree which says in his own law that anybody that hangs on a tree will become a curse. There you go. Verse 14, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ uh, in Jesus, Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham back in Genesis 12 says all nations on earth will be blessed through you. And then in Genesis 15, Abraham believes God and it credits to him for righteousness. He still hasn't done anything. He just simply believed. And he says that what happened there in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 prefigures the blessing upon the Gentiles who are not under the law. We have no law. Abraham had no law. The law is in between the two. And he's going to explain why it was placed there in a minute. Okay? That the blessing of Abraham might come upon Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is a confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. If I make a covenant with you right now, we make a covenant. We can't add to it. We can't annul it in any way, shape, or form. It is a binding covenant. The only way that we can do that is if we mutually agree to a change in the conditions. Otherwise, that covenant stands. That is all there is to it. There's no way to amend it. There's no way to annul it. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, singular, which is Christ. That's Genesis 12, 7. What he is saying is that one person is going to receive the promises of Abraham. One person. Do you remember what I said about Abraham walking outside in the daytime to see the stars? That's why I believe, and I'm certain I'm right about this. I may not be, but I do believe that when he walked outside, it was crystal clear day and there was one star in the sky and it overshadowed every other star in the sky even though they're there even there though they're in an astonishing number we cannot see them because the sun of righteousness malachi 4 2 overshadows it and to your seed singular is the promise made okay we're going to go on to verse 17 and this i say that the law okay which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. There's a couple things here about this verse. The first is that it says the law was 430 years after the covenant with or the promise made to Abraham. If you are in a Bible study and you hear that the Jewish people were in Egypt for 430 years based on Exodus chapter 13, that is not correct. The Jewish people were in Egypt for about 210 years. You can know this from the Old Testament, but it takes a lot of study. But Paul confirms it right here. It was 430 years from the time of the promise to Abraham until the time of the Exodus 
from Egypt. And that's just an important thing. And that's why Paul is so very specific about writing that in here, is so nobody will make that mistake. And yet almost every Bible scholar and almost every Bible study you will ever be in makes that mistake, that it was 430 years they were in Egypt. They weren't. They were in there about 210 years, and you can do that by dating the life of Isaac and the life of Israel and Levi and all those people. Anyway, he says that that law, the law of Moses, came 430 years after the promise to Abraham. It cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed by God in Christ, that it should be make the promise of no effect. Okay, here's what he's saying. God gives a promise to Abraham and he says this, and then he gives the law. This cannot annul this. He's already spoken here. If this can annul this, and that's why we go back to the point of people making a covenant. Something can't be added later to annul something that's already been spoken. And he made the promise in Christ Jesus to your seed. So this must stand and take precedence over this, which is the law of Moses. And I'm getting to a point about this because the law of Moses, these Jewish people are going up and they're introducing the law of Moses into the faith of these believers. Where does that happen today? It happens in churches all over the world. You can't eat pork. You can't drink Pepsi. Go to a Seventh-day Adventist church and some of them won't allow you to drink any sodas at all. You can't eat pork. You have to spend all day Saturday in church. And Paul says that that brings a curse on you. That is actually a false gospel. Anything that you add from the law back into the righteousness is bestowed upon you by Jesus Christ brings a curse on you. That's why it's so important to understand what Paul is saying in Galatians 3 and where the source of righteousness is. It's Genesis 15, 6. All right, verse 18. For if the inheritance is of the law, here's the promise, and then he gives the law 430 years later. If the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of a promise. But God gave it to Abraham as a promise. This is working. This is saying, I'm going to do this and this and this to please God. If it is of this, then the promise is null and void. And he says, that can't be. Verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? And I said this a couple times uh, last week, that there are a few reasons that the law is given in the New Testament. This is one of them right here. He's going to initiate it here. And when we get down to verse 24, it is going to explain what he is introducing right in verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? Why did God give the people of Israel the law? Anybody tell me why he did that? He's going to explain it right now. He's given a promise to Abraham, which is secured by faith. And then he says right here, what purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. What would happen in America if we had no laws? Anarchy, absolute anarchy. People are sinful. People need laws. God is going to do something through Abraham, through his son Isaac, through his son Israel, through the 12 tribes of Israel. It is called ushering in the Messiah, the promise, which is referred right here. But in order to do that in the fullness of time, he's got to have this corporate body of people living rightly. So he gives them the law. And let me ask you something. Did the law work? Did it keep them from straying? No, they were exiled because of it. He had to bring them back a second time and they strayed again. So even with the law, it couldn't do what it was supposed to do. It was simply added because of transgressions. It says here, it was added because of transgressions till the seed, meaning Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made. The promise was made to Abraham about the seed to come, Jesus. And so the law was introduced in there for that purpose. And it says, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. 
Okay, he's going to explain that. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. And what he says is that you have God here, you've got the people of Israel here, and they have something called a high priest to mediate between the two. You have sinned. We need to get rid of our sin. You sacrifice, we will sacrifice. And this is the mediation going on. If he's not there, then there is no atonement for their sins. They need the day of atonement. And so the high priest does these things. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one, but God is one. Have a wonderful day. It says, please take some mangoes. Don't leave without taking mangoes. God is one. And what does that mean? What does it mean when it says that God is one? There's no mediator needed for God. He makes a promise in his seed. He doesn't have to mediate between himself. Verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Here's a question. He gives the promise to Abraham, and then he gives the law. Is this law against the promises of God? It's a very good question, and his answer is certainly not. How do we know? Because if this law could bring about righteousness, then the promise would be of no effect. If this could make a person perfect, then we don't need the promise. He says, but certainly not. Why? For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been of the law but the law couldn't do it. So it doesn't in any way negate the promise made to God already. It was simply given for the people of Israel until the time of this coming Messiah. Verse 22, but the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All people on earth are given under sin. Every one of us, whether we have the law or not, we are all sinful by nature and we're all bound under sin in order to show our need for Jesus Christ. And so he's going to explain it here in just another verse. Let me give you verse 23 first. But before faith came, faith in Jesus Christ, we were kept under guard by the law, for the, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. The promise is made in Genesis 12. The promise is given in Genesis 15, or the blessing is promised in Genesis 12. The, uh, promise is given in Genesis 15, and that points to Jesus Christ. In the interim, the law is given. Therefore, verse 24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law is a tutor. It's just simply a tool to show us that we cannot save ourselves, that we need something more. And all of the people of the world that are trying to fulfill the law, whether it's in Israel today or whether it's in a church that says you can't eat pork, are not understanding what God has done in Christ Jesus. And I bring this verse up, sermon after sermon after sermon. What did Jesus say? I did not come to abolish the law. That's God's standard. I came to fulfill it. He fulfilled it on our behalf. Do you understand that? Do you understand what's going on? The law isn't abolished. If you haven't called on Jesus Christ, you are bound under that law. And you will be cursed because of it, because cursed is everyone who does not do everything in this law. But Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law on our behalf. Verse 25, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We no longer need the tutor because we have the faith. What does that mean? I say it once again. I say this sermon after sermon. The law is set aside in Christ. It says it at least three times explicitly in the book of Hebrews alone, and it says it many other times in the Old Testament. The law is over. It is done away with. If you try to reinsert the law, you are bringing a curse on yourself. We're almost done. Verse 25, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. 
for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We are adopted into God's family by mere faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. If you have been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean if you've gone out there and been baptized in the water that you've put on Christ? I got to tell you, you got to be very careful with that because there are denominations that actually baptize children. And those children have no relevance to what God is saying right here. They have absolutely no relevance at all. What he is talking about is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Even John, before Christ was crucified, said, I baptize you with water, but there is one who is greater than me who is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That is the baptism that you receive when you call on the name of Jesus Christ. And the water baptism that we give out there is only a picture of that. It is not anything that saves you. And you've got to be careful of that. I brought something. Let me read this to you. I know I'm getting a little long today, but let me read you what I read this daily devotional every single day of my life. And I love to yell at it because this is a infant baptism church that puts this out. It says, we must affirm a special working of the spirit in baptism, meaning water baptism, because the New Testament connects this sacrament and the work of the Holy Spirit very closely. We see this. For example, in today's passage, where Paul speaks of the washing of regeneration. Elsewhere, Peter says that baptism now saves you. And they've taken this entirely out of context. Baptism doesn't save anything. What he's talking about is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that saves you. Water baptism only is a demonstration that I have accepted Jesus Christ. Once again, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. The moment you believe, you receive. Down at the bottom of their commentary, they say, we do not believe in baptismal regeneration. Well, thank goodness for that. In other words, you're saved by baptism. But it, with the New Testament, we do confess that baptism is a real means of grace. That's almost Roman Catholicism in its nature, where they say that taking the sacraments is a means of grace. It's not. It is a symbolic memory of what Jesus Christ did. He held the bread in his hands and he said, this is my body. If it was anything other than symbolic, he couldn't have said that. If it was spiritual in nature or if it was actually the elements, but he said, this is my body. It's the same thing with baptism. So please keep that in mind, is that we receive the Holy Spirit and we are baptized with the Holy Spirit the moment we believe in the work of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of Galatians chapter three. We'll finish it up with two more verses. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And people will use this verse right here to justify that there are no longer Jewish people in God's economy. The very fact that he says there is now neither Jew nor Greek means that there are Jews and Greeks. The very fact that he says there are neither male nor female is showing a distinction. Any fool can walk up to a woman and say, I know you're a woman. Of course there are women and of course there are men. What this is talking about in this verse is not that there are no longer Jewish people. It is saying that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Male and female are on the same category. Slave and free are all on the same category. Jew and Gentile are all on the same category. God has a plan for the Jewish people and it is coming soon. But until that happens, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. Verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You are the seed that's referred to all the way back in the verses that we've been reading today. That's the last verse of Galatians 3. I know I got long and I apologize for that, but one more thing I want to do in case somebody is watching this and they don't understand everything I've just said is that 
If you have never called on the name of Jesus Christ, you are eternally separated from God. All you need to do is say that I can't save myself and I want the promises of Abraham. I want to believe by faith that Jesus Christ died for me, he rose again to justify me, and that by calling on his name, I can be washed free of the sins of my life. That's what God asks of you. All of this commentary today is summed up in that short little thought that we can't save ourselves, even by deeds of the law, and that Christ will do it for us. Let me read my weekly poem to you, and we're done. This is called, Avram Declared Righteous by Faith. After Avram's great battle to rescue Lot, and then meeting Melchizedek next, a vision from the Lord Avram got, and at first he seemed a bit perplexed. The Lord appeared to him and told him this, Do not be afraid, Avram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward, so don't you dismiss what I tell you, great riches it will yield. But Avram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing as I continue without a child? I have no offspring, as you can see. By your words, I feel interestingly beguiled. The heir of my house is this guy Eliezer. The one from Damascus will inherit my razor. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. He'll have everything from my camel to my chair. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, Nope, this one shall not be your heir. I know about this you've been praying. And from your own body, a son will come. So do not despair. Then he brought Avram outside and said, Look now toward heaven, count the stars if you can. Close your eyes and try counting them in your head. It's something impossible for any man. And he said to Avram, who was waiting to hear, Thus shall your descendants be, so don't you fear. And Avram believed the Lord and the promise he made, and to him righteousness was granted for his belief. From this one act came an eternal trade, and fallen man was given the hope of relief. Coming from Avram would be the Savior to all, the Messiah of the world who would give his life so that anyone that on his name would call would come to the end of all turmoil and strife. Peace with God, righteousness bestowed by faith alone, nothing else owed. Such is the nature of God towards man. All he asks is faith in the things he has done. A little bit of faith is the heart of the plan because through faith in Jesus, the victory is won. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for Paul's writing of Galatians 3, which clears up these things that we otherwise would not have perceived, that you had a plan, even at the time of Abraham, to bring in your son and to justify the Gentiles of the world by faith, by faith alone, without any deeds of the law. Thank you for the law and how it shows us our utterly miserable state without that great, great person coming in and fulfilling it on our behalf. Our Lord and Savior, who died and was resurrected so that we could have eternal life and fellowship with you. Thank you for that. We love you. We praise you in Jesus name. Amen.